Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So good afternoon. <clears throat> Um, uh, some of us have been together for a few days uh, in Willard at the Christine Center on retreat, and we've been studying a text together uh, from the Buddhist tradition, uh, the Pali Canon, from the Majjhima Nikaya, which are the middle-length discourses. And uh, as always happens when I'm teaching a text, we didn't finish it. So I thought that today, here you go. I thought that today we could uh, try and finish it, if that's possible. So what that means is I'll start just by uh, updating you, or maybe this is a review for some of you who've forgotten where we are, because um, it appears as a really simple text as it begins, and then it gets kind of psychedelic. Um, so uh, hopefully this is okay for you if uh, you're just dropping in now. So uh, the text is called Fear and Dread, and it's a uh, documentation of a dialogue that happens where a Brahmin comes to the Buddha, his name is Janusoni, and first he approaches the Buddha and asks him if the people in the Buddha's community have faith in the Buddha. And there's just a short teaching around how uh, the reason why people have faith in the Buddha is because of his example, which I think is a wonderful uh, point to make, which is uh, leading by example rather than doctrine or belief or um, orthodoxy or ritual. And then um, Janusoni asks the Buddha, uh, what was it like when you practiced, or when you continue to practice, deep in the forest, in the wild, where there are animals and where there's solitude and so on? Um, doesn't things spring up a tremendous amount of fear and dread? which I added also terror and anxiety. And the Buddha said, yeah, yeah, it does. And he says that um, there are many reasons for this. So first of all, for somebody who is unpurified in their bodily conduct, 
and who doesn't act in wholesome ways. And we kind of broke down this idea of unpurified and also this term unwholesome, because sometimes people have an aversion to this term. Uh, but unwholesome literally means not recognizing the whole. And it's uh, a descriptor for somebody who has a lot of grasping at a physiological and psychological level, which is us. Right. And so he starts off by saying that somebody who has patterns in their body where there's a lot of grasping would go into a forest in solitude to meditate and experience a lot of fear and anxiety. And then he says, and actually, this is true for somebody with poor habits of verbal communication. That if someone has spoken unkindly to people, for someone who has uh, acted out with their speech in ways that are unskillful, uh, when they go sit down to meditate, they're going to experience anxiety and fear in the forest. And I've always thought this is really interesting and kind of sets some of the Buddha's teachings, particularly around mindfulness practice, which is what we focus so much on, what Kathleen focuses on, and Kathy, and Andrea, and so on. Um, which is that in a lot of forms of meditation, we're meditating to get into a space that's outside of our body, and kind of like beyond what happens in daily life, you know? And the Buddha is saying the opposite here. He seems to be saying that actually if you sit still, the shadows of what you've done in the past are going to emerge in your body. In other words, if you go to sit down and you think you're going to sit and like dissociate, well, um, you can for a while. But eventually, if you haven't spoken kindly if you've acted poorly in relationships, if your ethics are not so good, etc., 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 you're going to feel that in your meditation practice. And then he goes even further. And then he says, the other factor that contributes to fear and dread is your livelihood. If you have a livelihood that's exploitive, um, if you have a livelihood that damages the lives of other sentient beings, if you become more calm, more sensitive in your mindfulness practice, you will begin to feel that. You'll begin to feel that effect in your own heart. It's a very interesting teaching, I think. Um, then he says, if somebody is full of lust, if somebody is full of hate, Sloth, restlessness. Does everybody see the list here? Uh, doubt. I love this one. Self-praise and the disparagement of others. If they're subject to alarm and terror. If they're desirous of gain, honor, or renown. If they're lazy, unmindful, or unconcentrated then they set up the conditions for fear and dread. Then, and I'm going quickly here because I'm just trying to sort of bring you up to date and do a review for some of you, in case you were just on retreat and have no idea what we did. <laughs> um, 
And then the Buddha keeps going and he says, okay, so these are all the karmic patterns that move through our bodies. And I think all of us know this now that we're in the ages that we're in, um, that we are a combination of our culture, our ecology, our ancestry and families. The patterns in our body are not just from this one life that we've lived, but they're from the way that our DNA, the habits of others have come through us. And then all of that meets our environment. And I mean our environment in this moment, and then in this moment, and in this moment. And, and that's kind of karma playing through our experience. And the Buddha then says, there are auspicious nights when you're in the forest, which is the 14th, 15th, and 18th of the month. And those are the new moon, the full moon, and the quarter moon. And, pardon me? New moon, thank you. And he's saying that if you go out into the forest at night and you go sit when it's a full moon, those patterns that you have in your past will meet the energy of the full moon and create a more intense experience of fear, a more intense experience of anxiety. Who here is more anxious in the full moon? Or when there's no moon, it's really dark. And when it's really dark and you're in the woods, there are a lot of spirits. There are sounds. There are, uh, you're more susceptible to hallucination and visions. And so if you're not uh, purified in your... And when we talk about purification, it's not like pure in the sense of like clean and white. It's pure in the sense of lowering your levels of reactivity. That there's a more pure meeting of the present moment. And so the Buddha is saying, it seems like there's times of the month where if our reactivity is high, the time of the month will amp up our anxiety. And I think a, a great contemporary comparison is the apps that you can use nowadays to monitor your fertility cycle, <laughs> where you like check your temperature and your mucus and everything, and you and you you uh, put it in on the Kindra. app. You know, what's it called? Kindra. Kindra. Kindra as well. fertility, fertility friend, friend, whatever. Okay. Which you're obviously not using, or you're... Well, I was using okay. it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so, um, okay, so one of the interesting things about those fertility maps is, let's say you map it for a year or two years, let's say, a long time, right? When you go back and you look at the map and you look at your moods, in relationship to your fertility. You look at, like if you could map the chocolate consumption in a month <laughs> against your uh, menstrual cycle, 
You see what I'm saying? It's like there are a lot of psychological changes that happen that you could actually map in patterns over a year or two years or three years. And that's kind of what the Buddha's getting at here. Is like there are certain times of a month that are out of your control. Even if you're not menstruating. Even if you're not menstruating. <laughs> I mean, one argues that men go through these phases in a month, just like men go through menopause <laughs> and, you know, so on. Okay. It's just hard um, for them to admit. <laughs> yeah. Then... The Buddha shifts gears and says, okay, so now I'm mapping out uh, this experience of, of dread, part of which is in the natural world, part of which is in our own experience, part of which is related to our reactivity. And then he starts doing a practice. And his first practice is when he's feeling scared and he's sitting, he continues to sit as the fear changes in him. If he's walking and he feels scared, he continues walking mindfully with his breathing as he feels fear. And when he's lying down, if he feels fear, he continues to lie down. If he's lying down and he feels fear, he doesn't get up and start walking. He keeps lying down and he rides out the experience of fear. Most of us when we feel anxiety or fear, we change posture. And our first move is to somehow uh, escape our world, our inner world, our outer world. So, then uh, the Buddha says that a lot of uh, people, he uses a metaphor, when it's daytime, perceive it as nighttime. When it's nighttime, perceive it as daytime. And he's saying, what makes me a person who is awake or on the process of waking up? This is actually, for those of you who weren't here, this is his description of awakening, this text. which is He's describing what happened the night that he had his awakening. Um, he's saying, I perceive, this is a metaphor, I perceive night when it's night and day when it's day. And when I'm scared, I'm scared. When I'm not scared, I'm not scared. Another way, in other words, you can be scared and not add anxiety on top of being scared. And the anxiety that comes that we add on top of being scared is what reinforces anxious patterns in our experience. And what I added to this over the weekend is to change our thinking about what anxiety is from being an emotion to being a restriction of emotion. So instead of thinking of anxiety as an emotion that you feel, to think of anxiety as actually the muscular restriction, a restriction in the nervous system, a restriction in the psyche that is keeping our emotions at bay. Which creates rigidity, tremendous nervousness, and a fear of taking risks. 
a fear of putting yourself out there, whether that's socially or in terms of how you move your body or maybe a speaking, you know, when we're really anxious, we, we go into a freeze state, you know, or we move around a lot and it looks like there's a lot of movement happening, but actually you're in a frozen state. Do you know what I mean by that? Okay. Now my favorite part. So then the Buddha starts sitting and he starts practicing mindfulness of breathing and he's focusing on inhaling and exhaling. Okay? And then, so this is the top of the page, uh, his mind starts getting very calm, his body's tranquil, and he feels, the word he describes here is unified. Do you see that? And it's really important to balance that with the first term in the sentence, which is energy. So two things are happening at the same time while he's sitting. And I, I hope everyone in the room has experienced this. Where calmness is being developed at the same time as vitality. Okay. If there's too much energy, our calmness just isn't there. And if there's too much calmness and there's no energy, things just get sleepy. So we all know, especially if you've been on meditation retreats, there are these moments sometimes, or these sits sometimes, where there's like a perfect union of calmness and um, vitality. You know, you sit and you're right there, but you're really calm. Okay. Most of us, that's where our meditation stops. That's our practice. Our practice is trying to get that to happen, if you will, to get this balance of calmness and um, and vitality. Are there any questions before we keep going? Okay. Then, as this happens, something shifts, and the Buddha finds himself in a new state of absorption, which in Sanskrit we call dhyana, and in Pali is jhana. This state of absorption has two characteristics, well, four characteristics. The first two is that there is piti and, anybody remember? Sukha. Sukha. Piti is pleasure. Sukha is sweetness. Or you could even say happiness. It's okay to say happiness. So, do you remember this morning when we did that practice where you feel pleasure in your body? Was that possible for you? Feel a little pleasure? Even for five seconds? Just to feel some pleasure. Okay. So what happens is the Buddha's sitting, he's doing his regular mindfulness, and then he stumbles in to this experience where pleasure is in his body, he starts focusing on the pleasure, the pity, and then it brings sukha, or the happiness. Okay? And it's a happiness born of seclusion. 
not seclusion from the forest, but seclusion from distraction. And in the background are two other characteristics, vitarka and vichara, which means thinking and examining. Here they translate it as a applied and sustained thought. I, I, I wouldn't use those terms. Was, Just thinking and examining. What was the examining word again? Word for examining? Vichara. V-I-C-A-R-A. So let me just describe that in practical terms. (laughs) So in practical terms, that means you're practicing mindfulness of breathing, practicing mindfulness of breathing, and then you go somewhere in your body where there's pleasure. You start, and for some of us, that's really hard because we're like so into what's not pleasurable and we love focusing on what's not pleasurable unless it's from the outside. Right? Like most of us, we love the pleasure of chocolate. Right? We love the pleasure of a romantic comedy. As long as it's not happening in our own life. We love the pleasure. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like we love these external pleasures. This is a pleasure born of seclusion. It's the absence of an object. And it's a pleasure that comes inside your own body. And that if you feel it without trying to do anything with it, it actually starts to grow. Now that's not enough for it to be the first jhana. For it to be the first jhana, it has to be accompanied by the arising of joy, happiness, um, sweetness. When these two come together, thinking is in the background, and there's this feeling of pleasure and happiness. And this is accessible for everyone in this room. It's a practice you can do. You start out by trying to feel it for five seconds. And when you get good at it, maybe you can feel it for a minute. And then the ego comes in and crushes it. Because the ego like tries to own it somehow. And it all falls apart. And you try to practice it again. I'm not going to get into them now, but then there are three more jhanas, increasingly more absorbed, increasingly more concentrated, until there's no more thinking at all. There's equanimity, and there's no feeling anymore of pleasure or pain. Okay? Then, can I keep going? Okay. Then, in that experience of the fourth jhana, the fourth jhana starts to fade away, and then the Buddha suddenly has a vision of his past lifetime, and then that vision leads to a realization that in his lifetime, He was in a certain family. He had a certain color skin. He had a certain way he moved. He was certain ages. And then he thinks, oh, and there were previous lifetimes where I was these things. In a previous lifetime, I had a family, and I had a certain name, and came from a certain culture. Oh, and then he starts remembering, 
four, five, six, ten, forty, a hundred lifetimes. And then he thinks about the whole world as opening and closing, right? So he's like deep in there. And one of my own, uh, one of my commentaries on this that I was mentioning on the weekend to remind you is that all of these uh, things he sees are not about uh, reincarnation or, um, you know, that you have past lives or what have you. It's remembering how over time we identify with markers of identity. Such and such a family, such and such a color skin, such a gender, such like everything he's remembering is the things we all remember. Most of us can only remember 30 or 40 years. He can remember way, 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 way back. A lot of people who comment on this are kind of focus on like reincarnation. I don't think that that's what the Buddha is saying. It's my own take, but I don't think that's what he's getting at here. What then does he mean by I think that this is still poetic language in the same way that nowadays if we were to talk about evolution or genetics, we would talk about how our bodies and minds are developed over centuries via DNA. And even DNA is still not a great example because DNA still can't explain like the psychological the psyche, right? DNA is really good with like material continuation over time, you see? But doesn't really capture, I think, the psychological or imagination we have over time. Like, when I was a kid, I often had dreams about the Holocaust. My grandparents were in the Holocaust. They never talked about it. They never talked about it because they were quite traumatized. So I never knew anything about Poland, didn't know anything about their experience. Nothing. But at night, I would have dreams about the Holocaust with my grandparents in them sometimes, my father in the dream, like really these accurate dreams. Um... And there's a lot of documentation about how in psychotherapy, it's very common in family therapy where a kid will come in and have a dream that is the dream of the parents. So the kid will tell the dream, but it's about a dynamic happening for one or both of the parents and the kid picking up on it, like way below consciousness, you see. Mm -hmm. And I think all of us have had edge state experiences, whether it's in a high fever or on psychedelic drugs. I shared some of these stories on the weekend <laughs> by accident. Um, where we've seen into the nature of reality in a way that's pre-linguistic, you know? where we've had a visions or insights. How many, have you ever had a fever where you've kind of like seen something about like the continuation of life that you know is real, 
but you're like out of your mind, right? But if someone told you that was just a hallucination, you'd say, kind of, yeah, and also, it seems accurate, you know? And I think that's why a lot of people who, when they're young, experiment with drugs, end up, when they're adults, meditating. <laughs> you know? Um, then the Buddha says, okay, so he calls this the first watch of the night. He divides the night into three watches, three parts of the night. And in each watch, he has three insights, one insight in each watch, and these are called the three Vedas, the three knowledges. So the first one is that first he sees his past in this way, and then it starts to shift, and he starts to realize this is true for everything. Every being arises and passes away in time. And not just their birth and their aging and their death, but in every moment, they're being born and coming apart. Like in every moment, the moment is not really happening to a solid you. The moment is just a conditioned phenomena happening that feels like you. But that, in other words, birth and death are not like at the beginning and end of your life. They're actually in a moment that can't be repeated or predicted. And the example I gave on the weekend is spending time looking at this river that was in Willard at the retreat center where there was a whirlpool that I had to walk over every day. And every day I go there and there's a whirlpool in the same spot. The whirlpool looks like a thing. It's in the same spot, doesn't move, it's always there, and it doesn't exist. There's no thing that's a whirlpool. It's this conditioned, emergent property that's in flux that the brain processes as a thing but when we look just a little closer, there's nothing there, like us. <laughs> we feel like an identity, but actually, if you're a meditator, when you go inward and you try and find your identity, you can't find yourself. Because it's just complex physiological brain images, processes, we don't even know how to talk about it. Like fireworks happening in patterns where you can feel that the pattern's you, but it's ontologically not a thing. Make sense? Yes? It's kind of like quantum physics, isn't it? You know, particles and time changes all the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know anything about quantum physics, so I, I can't say, but I, I like saying yes. Yeah, all Canadians know about quantum physics. Can I have some water? Yes. Then he ties this into ethics again. 
Remember at the beginning, livelihood, bodily conduct? And he realizes all of these patterns of a self that we identify with are all caused by the actions of body and speech and mind and how they interact with the environment. In other words, every time you meet past action, past like a habit or whatever, you change it and you rework the pattern. And everyone's doing this all the time. So it's not like karma is all this habit from the past. It's a process that's always in motion. So it's not fate, if you will. And this is his uh, second uh, uh, knowledge. And now it's the middle of the night. Light arises in his heart. And he has his awakening experience. Sitting still after seeing all this, something shifts in his heart. And he experiences himself in a new way. So, let's just stop and see if there's any questions or comments. <clears throat>